Thank you for listening to the Plain State Podcast, a production of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Gabrielle Owen is an assistant professor of English at UNL. She's the author of A Queer History of Adolescence, Developmental Pasts, Relational Futures, published by University of Georgia Press in December 2020. This episode of Plain State is taken from a virtual celebration of her book, hosted by Timothy Shafford, professor of English at UNL and director of our creative writing program. This was the first in a series of events commemorating 50 years of LGBTQ studies at UNL. Gabrielle is known to her friends and colleagues as Brie, which is how you'll hear her address during the interview and discussion. We are very, very grateful to Brie and Timothy, as well as their colleagues who joined the discussion, for letting us share their conversation with you. I'm glad to have Brie Owen with me today to discuss her new book, A Queer History of Adolescence, Developmental Past, Relational Futures, which is just out this fall from the University of Georgia Press. Uh, Brie works with me in the English department. She teaches the, uh, among many other courses, she teaches the LGBTQ literature courses. And, um, and this is also p- part of the conversation that we're gonna be having uh, throughout 2021 that we kind of hoped to start in 2020 in celebration of 50 years of LGBTQ studies at UNL, specifically in the English department, which began in 1970, one of the first courses, certainly the first interdisciplinary course in LGBTQ studies taught to offer to uh, undergraduates. It started here with Luke Crompton. And um, and so we were kind of uh, doing our best to carry all of that forth. and. Um, and uh, and Bree's work in this area is it's it covers a lot of ground. It's scholarship, it's uh, it's criticism, it's social sciences, and as we'll talk a little bit about, there's a certain amount of personal reflection as well. So um, please welcome uh, Bree Owen, and um, well, uh, uh, oh, and and also we'll have a kind of Q and A at the end. So in the meantime, if you think of questions, you can. Uh, type them in and they'll reach me on the chat or you can express them yourself uh, when we when we open things up. But, um, but Brie, let's talk. Thank you so much, Timothy. And it's such an honor to be here and to be part of the event planning for our 50 year anniversary. And thank you so much for organizing this event. I'm, I'm thrilled to have you here. And um, uh, like I said, the book is explores historical research. It's 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 theory. It's queer theory. It's um, uh, and uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about. Um, I don't know. Do you want to start by talking about the genesis of the book, where it started, how it came from? So my joke about this, that's not really a joke, is that um, I am not over my own adolescence, and this book is my revenge. Um, so. Um, but um, it, it is a joke, but it's also uh, really the truth. Um, so I, I started with this question about, um, like, where did all these negative stereotypes about adolescence uh, come from? So those stereotypes like rebellious, hormonal, oppositional, you know, like out of control, or just sort of like unable to do things in an ordinary or responsible way. Um, I was very troubled by this. I was an overly responsible um, adult teenager. Um, and I'm working backwards in my adulthood by the time I'm 60, I'm going to live my adolescence to its fullest. Um, but, uh, I wanted to know, like, where did these ideas come from? So 
um, I did this giant archival project where I looked at 19th century newspapers and tracked the word adolescence in newspapers. And I was just looking for like the context, like how did they, uh, how did the word appear? Um, and um, I was looking for patterns, patterns of meaning, of usage. Um, and I was very surprised to find in the first half of the 19th century, all these positive associations or positive usages of the word adolescence. Um, I'll give you some examples like the joys of adolescence, all the gaiety and vigor of adolescence, the sunshine of adolescence, the strength of adolescence and uh, vigorous adolescence was the one that cropped up over and over and over again. Um, and I was very surprised to find this um, and kept looking for when it shifted. And around 1870 is where I started to find some of the first negative generalizations that were seemed to be attached to that word. Um, they, they, I found the temptations of adolescence, uh, the absurdities and crudities of adolescence, a perpetual state of rabid adolescence. So those aren't exactly like familiar to us today. Maybe the temptations are, but um, I started to notice this shift and the book sort of launched, its launch point was, well, why did, why did this happen, right? And then what are its consequences um, for today? Uh, well, you talk, talk in the book about the, the myth of adolescence. Is that what you're talking about here then in terms of these, these terms that tend to be applied to... Yeah, I mean, myth is a, a a dramatic word, and I'll just own that. Right? But um, I, the myth of adolescence is uh, a, I use that to refer more to like what we take for granted today, right? And I would say that that the myth of adolescence has to do with identity formation, right? That it's a time when we're going to discover conclusively who we are and then occupy that. And it, it's implied that it's going to be normative as well. Um, adolescence is when you're going to work out all your non-normative tendencies and then arrive at a properly gendered heterosexual adulthood. <laughs> um, and so the myth of adolescence is that it's a time of upheaval where everything gets tidied and put away until you arrive at that picket fence and 2.5 kids and dog and all of the nor all the trappings of normativity, which of course, as we know, those things aren't even available to everyone. Like there are markers of privilege, right? Um, and then of course, some people can't, despite their best efforts, occupy them. So I think that the myth of adolescence is that it is that function, that pressure that I think all of us have felt at some time to to change or grow out of um, uh, the things that that are essential to our experience. Well, uh, in the to go back to this this the, the concept of the adolescent, like uh, you referred to the bad adolescent versus the good child in the last chapter of the book, and I, I picked this line out because I want you, so you're talking about Alice Miller and um, children who are being praised. Um, Growing up, they eventually become hyper competent adults in a sense, and and uh, and yet they report feelings of emptiness and depression in the aftermath of accomplishment. And I just have to read your line here. Uh, perhaps many academics, since we're, we're speaking to academics here, uh, perhaps many academics like myself see themselves in Miller's description. Certainly, it seems that academia was designed to be both to, to both soothe and perpetuate such a cycle, anxiously working toward the next rung of, of achievement, only to find 
that there are more after it, that one never arrives at the end, that one is never just enough as they are. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about. That makes no <laughs> sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, um, so there's, it's it, this, I, I like the, that idea of, of academia as the, the, uh, the parent that, an extension of the parent who's giving and withholding love, essentially. Um, yeah, that one hopefully is not too close to home for everyone in the room. Um, it certainly is for me. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, all of schooling, I mean, not just academia, but all of schooling, the grades, right, the progression through, um, when you think, you know, and that moment of like, I've done it. And it's like, and there's more, or just, we're going to do it all over again. <laughs> um, and what happens when we start to interpret that progression as meaningful about who we are as people and our value in this world, um, um, just to like contrast, like, and instead of thinking of like an achievement based identity and self-worth, like what about things like um, kindness or um, profound relationships, one's ability to care, um, care for others, care for oneself, one's ability to um, nurture an environment or a community. Um, so there's a different set of, we might evaluate ourselves differently um, other than that sort of, um, you know, academic achievement model that I think is not just pervasive in academia. You know, some people call it like neoliberal or that it's capitalist, right? Um, and um, I talk a little bit about that. It's not just like, it's not just achievement, but also like the self as a commodity, right? The self as a product. Well, and you also talk about um, in that chapter and also really throughout the book, the use of the child to meet adult needs. And in this instance, you're talking about the, the, the personal relationship between the child and the adult, but then there's also this, the social level in terms of um, how children and adolescents and, and our, uh, the way we describe them and depict them then serves our needs uh, in terms of developing programs and, and thinking of psychology, you know, all the various uh, methods and modes that adolescents become useful toward. Yeah, so some of um, that like use of the child, so in, in children's literature and in childhood studies, this like the idea of the child as innocent or being um, like eroticized or romanticized by adults, that has like a long history um, and it's something that people in childhood studies sort of talk about a lot, critique a lot. Um, and one of the things my book does is sort of like um, draws out specific places where that happens and then how we might not do that, do it. So um, it like has a historical origin. I'm talking about the, this early 20th century moments of new institutions, psychology, um, medicine, um, um, all these areas of expertise to sort of care for children um, that are based on childhood development and a concept of childhood development, which like prior to like the mid 19th century, like childhood development as a thing that didn't, that's not the way that children were thought to grow. Um, so development is a very specific kind of where everything is a process toward something that is better than where you started. Um, uh, an evolutionary, <laughs> right, or a certain version of evolution also follows that developmental, developmentalism is what I call it in the book. Um, and other people use that term. So 
Um, the child is used to establish institutional expertise in the early 20th century um, that um, that innocent innocent child is also mobilized for a, like social programs, um, funding for social programs in order to like um, get things done. Um, it's also connected to what like Lee Edelman um, talks about like the capital C child as the beneficiary of every political intervention, right? Or the definition of pol politics itself, like everything has to be for the children, but the children, of course, that are being evoked are not like real live children who are suffering from hunger and poverty, right? And like wide scale disenfranchisement. It's not those children. They deserve what they get, right? It's you no, know, the, the future children, right? Um, then we are also invited as individuals to use our childhood self, our past self to either to dismiss or disavow it or to use it to sort of like make ourselves who we think we're supposed to be um, in a sort of like psychological sense. Um, and a, what these, um, all these different ways of use um, that happen, um, oh, at Al Alice Miller, when you were um, citing her, so she talks about a dynamic where a parent basically like has an, an essentially exploitative relationship with their child or the child is there to make the parent feel good about themselves, right? Um, to manage their unstable feelings, right? And then you have some weird dysfunctional things that happen where the child exists only to sort of please the parent, right? Make them proud, um, meet their emotional needs, be their um, emotional stability. Um, and I sort of make a parallel between that like personal use of the child and historical use of the child. Um, what all of these ideas do is they function as if they are definitions of childhood itself. That they are, And what it does is that then we can't see the people who are children as people, um, just like adults are people. Um, and that they're, um, I say in my, my children's lit class all the time, I'm like, children are as various in personality and feelings um, as we are in this room, right? Um, and so when we start to sort of um, confine a child into this imaginary romanticized space, either our memory of ourselves or our understanding of the children that we work with or um, or children in general, then we we lose touch of that. Like this is a this is a person and not just an idea. Yeah, I think in one place you uh, you refer to it as the figure of the child versus the material beings and doings of children. And I was also thinking in terms of how that reflects queer identity too, and and gender identity, and how we can choose our pronouns, we can choose how we identify, but that's a, a different system than who we actually are and how we actually feel at any given moment. Yeah, and I, I am so interested in that tension between like the language, the idea, the conceptualization, and then the 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 lived reality, the experience, like the phenomenon, um, and then how we theorize in the space between those two things. And definitely um, queer theory and gender studies work um, and tra uh, trans theory um, has a lot to say about that tension. Um, I love um, thinking about just those like early misunderstandings of Judith Butler's work of um, like gender performativity, where it's like, if gender is performative, then it's not real. So none of it's real. <laughs> right. And then, um, you know, of course you have all these like 
queer, trans, non-binary people who are like, no, my gender is real. It's really essential to my existence and it's important. And I've been fighting, right? <laughs> All the work is so that I can be myself, right? Um, but that, um, that, um, that that's a misunderstanding of what performativity is and a misunderstanding of what Butler argues that, um, that, that understanding that discourse and uh, language that concepts shape what we understand is real doesn't mean that there isn't like experiential, you know, phenomenon that we, we aim to describe and understand. Um, so my, my solution, my, how I reconcile this tension is that, um, that, um, I argue that we are ethically responsible for the knowledge we produce or reproduce or reiterate. And that once we understand that we are sort of like entangled with each other, um, entangled with language, um, with our environment, with the world, that then we're ethically responsible for that language. When we think about, well, what does it do? What does this concept do? Is it doing something good? Is it making people more free, making their lives more possible, right? Or is it oppressive? Is it dehumanizing? Um, it, does it make me feel dead inside, right? Like you can, you can do it on that like big community level or on that individual level. Um, and maybe I have also sort of like just borrowed this from, from psychology and psychoanalysis where it's like, if, if our narrative, we live, we need narratives to live, what are our narratives about ourselves and our lives doing? And if they're not doing what we want them to do, if they're hindering our functionality and our happiness, then we need to change them, right? And change them in a way that makes our lives more possible. Um, that that recognition doesn't mean that there is that nothing is real or that our narratives are futile. It means that there's all the more, it's just making what's at stake explicit. Um, and, and that's what I really um, aim to do. Uh, Dr. Amanda Gailey has a question for you. I'd like to get your thoughts. Uh, she says, I've been doing a lot of research on the troubled teen industry, which makes me realize we should have had Amanda interviewing you for this. <laughs> I do a lot of research on the uh, quote troubled teen industry, which is a massive lucrative industry founded exactly on the normativity that you've, that you've mentioned. I would just like to hear anything Brie has to say about the troubled teen industry. Yeah, I'm, uh, I, um, the troubled teen industry, like Amanda, are you thinking of like all the self-help books and these, like, there's also like programs for troubled teens and like at risk, right? All that kind of language. I'm thinking about the like complex of residential boarding schools, wilderness programs that keep morphing from like the kind of, um, scared straight, boot camp programs into now it's all like therapeutic, but they're the same abusive programs where some number of kids die every year. And uh, I didn't know, like, I mean, it's, it's very recent. It's a recent development. I didn't know if you had really poured yourself into that um, or not, but I, I just wanted to hear your thoughts on it. If you had encountered it in any of your work. Yeah, I did not do the kind of like detailed research that you are probably doing right now about what's going on with that. I did have a cousin that was sent to a boot camp, <laughs> um, as well as I have a friend who is a grown person now <laughs> who also did a kind of like troubled teen program in New York um, that was like used a lot of therapeutic t techniques um, 
but that also was sort of like weird and controlling and codependent. And so there's a real like culty, I think was the word that she used, right? Like, um, it really did actually originate in a cult, but that's, <laughs> that's just, a, yes, there's a reason she's seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that these, um, types of programs can only exist they're they're justified by this like larger cultural narrative about teenagers as like a danger to themselves um and um and a risk to society um and then um another weird thing that happens with all these that kind of language about teenagers is that teenagers bear the burden of every problem um, a social problem, family problem. Um, it's they they become the the center, the locus of it. They must be the origin of it. When no um, larger circumstantial dynamics, like whether they're social or whether we're talking about like bullying or homophobia or racism, like the kinds of things that teenagers actually deal with, um, sexual assault, right? Um, any kind of um, unhealthy or um, oppressive um, parental dynamic, right? It takes all the attention off of I mean, off of anything that's going on around the teenager and makes them the, the center of the problem. And I think we see that repeated in like, social evocations of that troubled teen or at-risk teen all the time. Um, in my chapter four, I refer, there's this guy named Mike Males who did all this research on the state of California um, on, um, on statistics. And he really like, he has these books that are like, here's like 10 myths about teenagers. Um, and he looks at all these um, uh, statistics and data um, and uh, it, and one of the things he says is he is that in in the 90s in California that social services basically like invented this narrative in order to get funding for things um, and that maybe they had good intentions to start it was like a, a period of like you know defunding and so in order to keep certain things alive then they were like we must do it because um so one of the consequences one of the things he talks about is like teen suicide and teen suicide statistics and all these claims in the 90s that suicide had gone up um and when uh, all the data pointed to the 90s as like one of the lowest periods for teen suicide since the 60s um or since the beginning of like when they started tracking it um and um he uh, he says that they like used that that narrative of at risk, you know, teens in order to like fund programs. But then there's this huge consequence in terms of like how teenagers are being perceived. Um, and one of the things that he said is that like what one of the consequences is that then there's no study that is funded on when suicide rates go down. Right. Um, and no one is interested in that. And it's like, well, that would be very interesting if we are trying to find solutions or theorize about what's going on, um, why that no study will is gets funding for to study why suicide rates go down. It has to be, it can't be, oh, well, then there's no problem there, right? It's like, we're not interested in when there's no problem. We're only interested in constant crisis. So there's a kind mm -hmm. of like um contradictory thing that it, where problems sort of get like perpetuated rather than addressed or studied in a meaningful way yeah thank you i really like that idea of i think you're exactly right about how 
it's society's problems and also parental fears about a child not not graduating into normativity, but graduating into the societal problems, all being projected just on the kid. Like the kid becomes the site and source of those problems. And so they have to be sent away where someone else does the, the surrogate parenting. Yeah. Well, and it's so weird because it's like this over-focus on like, it's like, the, it's an over-focus that blames the teenager, right? But that doesn't actually like address their real problems. Right. Right. Which is a weird like paradox, right? Where it's this over-focus, but then in a way that erases them as a human being mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with thoughts and feelings. And like, I don't, I don't mean to suggest at all that teenagers don't struggle with depression, anxiety, abuse, right? <laughs> Addiction, right? Mm-hmm. All of the things that adults also struggle with, right? And, um, you know, one of the arguments I make about um, suicide statistics and and, in the, and about um, this claim of like teen suicide is going up, like that claim all the time. When I looked at the data, I was like, well, when teen suicide goes up, it goes up in every age demographic. So why aren't we talking mm-hmm. about it? Why aren't we looking at it as a social problem, right? Looking right. for it at a broader picture instead of as a teenager problem, right? Oh, those teenagers, we need to save them from themselves, um, right? When it's like, actually, they're living in a terrifying world with no future, right. just like the rest of us. So, <laughs> right. I'm sorry, it got a little depressing there. What <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and while we're on the subject, while we're on the depressing subject, uh, <laughs> I did want to ask if you um, if, if you could speculate a little bit or if you wanted to speculate about the impact of COVID and uh, adolescents staying at home, learning from home, this, this confinement that we've been in and how that's going to influence. I mean, I, mean, I we were talking about this yesterday and there is that same kind of conversation about suicide rates are up, you know? And so, uh, but I, I, I wonder if, if, if if, you, if your sense is that this is going to inform how society views adolescents going forward and, and, and the role of, of schooling in children's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I should qualify this by saying I do not have teenagers. I have a three and a seven-year-old. <laughs> so, um, uh, but uh, I have a uh, nephew by marriage who's in high school right now, who's very lonely, um, and really struggling, um, uh, in New York doing online school. Right. And then we've also had our experiences at our house with online school and just this like profound isolation that's happened this year. Um, of course, like this past year has impacted, um, kids in the same way that has impacted us as adults. Right. Um, and it, in, I think that one of the one of the 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 results of of my argument is to try to conceptualize the experience as sort of one that's that's shared and not not that's not like specifically different for kids. Um, right. So that it's like the effects of isolation, those are the same, right? They cause the same loneliness and grief in an adult as a kid, right? Um, I think that schooling definitely adds a layer of pressure and, and a different kind of dialogue or or, um, or the way we talk about kids. So um, I've been hearing a lot of things about schooling uh, and like they're going to get behind, 
Um, I don't know if that's like, you know, like kids are behind. Right. <laughs> um, and I, I was sort of, I was trying to check myself about this cause I, this makes me sort of scoff. Um, kids are behind. Um, but I was trying to check myself. Cause I'm like, well, I have a first grader, like missing some of first grade. It's not going to be catastrophic, but then I'm like thinking about what I did in high school too. And I'm like, is that even a thing? Like, is there behind, like, what does that mean behind? <laughs> behind what? <laughs> like, uh, as if, like, I don't know. It's again, it's a, it's stuck in this like developmentalism logic that you're on a pathway in a process where you're going to end up somewhere. And if you skip a step, you're going to, you're doomed, right? <laughs> you're doomed. You're off the path. You've, you've regressed, <laughs> right? You're either evolving or you've devolved. And that's not an accurate description of human existence um, or even what matters in life. Um, and I think it's just really tragic, the pressure that both parents and kids and teenagers have felt um, to, um, to keep up with the status quo under such extraordinary circumstances that have been fraught with like fear and grief and uncertainty about the future. I mean, even just like, you know, I mean, some of us were home and like baking and decorating and stuff. And so it's hard to be like, well, why do I feel so upset and sad and horrible? And it's like, if you can't plan anything ahead, if you can't see a future, that is a, a devastating condition um, to live in where you can't look forward to something. You don't know what's going to happen. Um, uh, even, you know, we have family we haven't seen in over a year, right? Um, to not be able to to know when for my kids, like see their friends next, right? Or see grandma or so I, you know, I would tend to, uh, there definitely are some, some some specific consequences um, for um, children and teenagers about the way we keep talking about schooling, right, and COVID. Um, but that this, one of the solutions to that is sort of grapple with this sort of shared experience, the way that kids' experiences are actually similar to adults, the way that they're experiencing the same grief, the same loneliness, the same uncertainty about the future, um, and then to think about what do we do from there. Well, in in your epilogue <laughs> to the book, which was written presumably before the elections and before COVID, and but you talk about post-truth as a concept and as a term, and and you apply it to how we talk about uh, uh, LGBTQ issues and 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 identity, and and you you explore how that's all connected and also repelling. And so could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Okay. So this chapter, well, the epilogue was a little like blip. It was written sort of like post-Trump, but pre-COVID. Um, and uh, I, there was, there was this moment um, where I started thinking about, so post-truth is this idea that um, we're living in a world where people can't tell facts uh, from fiction anymore, right? <laughs> um, and uh, it tries to get at this phenomenon of like, you know, conspiracy theories or mis like like uh, misinformation. Um, 
And um, it's a, it's um, a sort of, it can be a sort of conservative term. Like that, the diagnosis of our time as post-truth can be conservative in that it's like nostalgic for a time when truth was really truth, right? So of course, like queer theory would have a problem with that. <laughs> right? Um, with that diagnosis. Okay. But at the same time, I also like watched the Trump administration use what appeared to be like post-structuralist moves to claim that their reality was really the real one (laughs) and to sort of like disturb, like stir the pot. So I started thinking I'm like really seriously, like I was having an academic crisis where I was like, is queer theory, is there no use for queer theory anymore? Is queer theory being used for evil? Like, what is the purpose of queer theory or any kind of post-structuralist theory in a world where, right, the, the disputing truth claims is like something everyone does on a Tuesday just to say they don't like something, right? I mean, the number of people who think that COVID is not real or who think the vaccine is dangerous, everything from you know, it's, it's experimental to you're getting a 5g tracker implanted in your brain by Bill Gates. Like there's a range of skepticism about the vaccine, but it is so devastating. Like the effects of this distrust and, 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 um, the difficulty to tell like what's, what's, what's true or not is, is devastating. And, and I don't say that like, as like, oh, all those people, all those conspiracy theorists, like I'm an academic trained to evaluate information. Um, And it's hard for me to tell sometimes what's true. Like, and I have like information synthesis skills (laughs) that are not the average person. Like the average person should be able to trust what their neighbor says they read on the news or whatever. (laughs) Right. But now we don't even know what the news is. Is the news Twitter? Like, (laughs) right. Does your mom get her news from Facebook? Right. Like, so there's, um, anyway, I am fascinated by, I think that, that my, my like next project, I'm fascinated by like the, the consequences of, of this post-truth moment or this like age of misinformation. And, um, I ha I argue in that epilogue that, um, queer theory is not to blame. Post-structuralist theory is not to blame for post-truth. Um, it actually diagnoses post-truth, right? The thing that, um, queer theory would say is that, yeah, the person with the most money and the most power is the, the person who can buy the most viral algorithm, right? That person gets to say what's true. Like they get to control the narrative, right? So, um, and then this goes back to that, like earlier when we were talking about Judith Butler and performativity, right? Um, these theories don't necessarily, they don't dismiss that, that there is experiential reality, right? And if anything, if anything, um, performativity is, this is Karen Baird says, performativity is a contestation of the excessive power given to language to determine what's real, end quote, right? (laughs) So um, that, um, that, that question of some forms of knowledge are like the way we understand things, it is it is constructed. And if we use a different apparatus, if we use a different point of view, we will see what is real differently, 
right? That doesn't mean there is no reality, right? But that we are then ethically responsible for the knowledge that we produce and the and for accounting for the position from which we stand and the tools that we use. And so what I think is sort of the next wave of of the work of queer theory is about accounting more fully for those stakes and that ethical work. And I think a lot of um, theorists are doing this and have been doing this in the last decade. Um, and um, there's it goes by many names, right? But this accounting for why are we doing what we're doing? What is it for? Um, and um, yeah, Donald Trump did not, and his people did not read queer theory and then get like, Mwahaha, like evil thoughts like that is not they did not read Derrida and then start to then politically strategize that did not happen <laughs> um instead I think that that theory actually diagnoses the present moment which only exposes how much knowledge is um is uh constructed and produced um I also wanted to ask you too that so as I was saying there was uh, there's historical research, there's social sciences, there's criticism, and um, and, and, the, and then the, the line I read at the beginning about academia and all that. I mean, so there's there's also a, a voice. There's, there's ex this reads to me like expression as well. So I wanted, if you might talk a little bit about that too, that, that pursuit of scholarship, but at the same time, you're, I, I get the sense that you're invested in the discussion to, to a large degree, and that it's uh, it ends up becoming, to some degree, a, a, a plea. The book is, is like a, a, a non-ironic, a modest proposal. You know, mm -hmm. but it's it's about the children, about adolescence, and mm -hmm. um, preserving their uh, safety. Yeah. So um, when I was in grad school, I've been working on this adolescence idea for a very long time. Um, I wrote like a master's thesis on young adult literature as this problematic category and then sort of went into a PhD program with adolescence pitched as my dissertation. Um, in an early, like I was in a class and we were doing that seminar paper presentation um, and I'm reading about how adolescence is a social construction. I'm presenting to the class and my professor, like with a twinkle in his eye, was like, okay, yeah, but so what? And I was like, oh, well, because, duh, oh, duh, duh, duh. <laughs> like, you know, of course it feels like very important to me. Like this is very personal to me. And I was like, well, duh, duh. so I was like trying to say like, why? And he kept following up with like, okay, but so what? And, um, uh, it was all, it was all in good fun. This was a, an incredibly formative moment for me about articulating the stakes of my own work. So I think like, you know, coming out of uh, the 90s uh, and reading thing, all the things that are socially constructed, right, one might get the impression that identifying that something socially constructed, like already solves it or like um, is sort of politically radical in itself. And I think um, one of the things that we are seeing right now is it absolutely does not. Um, there's an, an example in my introduction I give where there's a trend among fundamentalist Christians right now to tell their teenagers that adolescence is a social construction and therefore they need not have one. They just should develop uh, from dutiful children to dutiful adults who still parrot the beliefs of their parents. 
and they should skip all of that individuation in between. Um, and of course, that is an incredibly oppressive use of like that argument that adolescence is socially constructed um, to deny children like the space for individuation um, or to question and identify their own beliefs. Um, and I, I came across it finding all these blogs of basically these like 30 year olds who are like, I'm having to do my individuation now um, as you, like you can't skip it. I just it took me till I was 30 because I was so like controlled until now to be like, right, to, to be like, wait a minute, what do I really believe? Um, so, um, yeah, and, uh, I think that, uh, uh, we've also seen this with like, I, again, just the, the political discourse in the last, you know, four years that someone saying, you know, that something is, is invented does not necessarily, it can be used for like very, you know, questionable <laughs> aims, right? So um, for me, um, making not just my own personal stakes, like I have feelings as a person, I do evoke th those in the book occasionally, <laughs> but also saying like, this matters for people's lives, right? Um, the, the kind of critical analysis or cultural analysis I'm doing um, is about why I'm doing it is because I want people's lives to be more possible. Um, and, um, yeah, there's also a tension. Um, one of the reasons I was so, um, emphatic about my stakes as well is because there's a kind of kickback against critique happening right now in the Academy. So you have like Rita Felsky's, um, the limits of critique. And then, um, in, um, there's a few other people, uh, Eve Sedgwick also, I think was an early forerunner of this moment where she's, you know, with her paranoid reading, like, why are we doing this? Right. And she sort of, um, counters with, um, reparative reading. Um, but sort of like, I mean, Sedgwick is just brutal in her, like, like scathing <laughs> call out of academic practices. Um, so uh, in the field of children's literature, um, some big name people have, there's this sort of like, um, like resistance to critique, like we shouldn't do that anymore or, but, but what's following in its place can look like a sort of return to that essentializing or romanticizing move where it's like, let's look at books written by children and talk about how amazing they are, right? As if that's sort of seeing children as people in and it of itself. Um, and of course it's very, I think that's important, important work. But one of the things I felt sort of cautious about is, um, the, a sort of reactionary swing back and forth between critique and then um, sort of like essentializing or romanticizing um, depictions of children in our scholarship. Um, so um, my work instead tries to reconcile a sort of how do we, how do we do work that has real stakes for real people, for actual children, that acknowledges actual children exist and their lives matter, and also like that we do th that critique for the purpose of making lives better. I, I feel like, I think that gender studies, queer theory, um, critical race studies, I feel like any like activist kind of theory already knows this and takes us for granted. Um, and this is just like making explicit in a place where it isn't always, right? That there's real stakes um, when it comes to like actual lives. Um. Thank you. And Matt, 
has a, a, a comment, so go ahead and unmute yourself, Matt, and speak. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. Bree, this is great. Um, I have just a comment and an appreciation. No, a comment and two appreciations. Um, first, I, I will just say you're onto it when you talk about um, the post-truth in the Trump regime, because Stephen Miller was an undergrad at Duke while I was there, and he was a political science major, and there's no question that he read post-structuralism. I mean, that's just, that stuff's in the curriculum. There's, there's no way he could have avoided it. So, so when, you, when you talk about, uh, when, and in your, in your book, when you model another way of kind of thinking about the relation between these, these two sort of domains of representation and of being, it's really powerful and really, and really needed. Um, you know, it's a really important um, contribution, I think, at, at multiple levels. And I just want to say, um, you know, I, I had the, the, the great good fortune um, to, to see some of the process behind uh, the creation of this book. Um, and uh, I just want to say how much I admire um, your goals for the book, the way you thought about it as a thing that could do something in the world, um, as mediating among uh, conversations that don't always, that, that sometimes don't even happen, but, sh but should. Um, and uh, so I just wanted to say how much I admire that quality of the book. And of course, as, and, and that as a, as a habit of yours, uh, uh, as, a, as, a, as a thinker and as a person. Thank you, Matt, so much. That means so much to me. Uh, on that subject, what what are you working on, Bree? What's what's next? <laughs> because we can never be satisfied in academia. So therefore, <laughs> that was last that was last month's achievement. Now now what do you what have you what have you done for us lately? <laughs> um, boy, do I wish I'd known about this question. <laughs> <laughs> My chair is listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, no, uh, joking aside, um, yeah, I'm fascinated by this tension between, you know, what I've started calling post-truth phenomena, um, so as to not marry myself to the term post-truth. I'm like, post-truth phenomena, I'm not diagnosing it as post-truth, <laughs> but things we would call post-truth phenomena, and um, the the near and dear methods of post-structuralist theory, um, near and dear to my heart, like, what, what does theory do now? What do we do now? Um, and I do not have all of the answers to that book, uh, to that question in for my next book, but I'm, I want to have them, right? Like I need a, a year or two <laughs> to work it out. Um, and, um, and I feel like the key is this, I want to sort of like synthesize all of these different conversations. I think that the, you know, a queer history of adolescence does synthesize conversations in like critical race studies, um, childhood studies, queer theory, trans studies, right? All these sort of like um, sort of marginalized groups who have um, developed theory in order to like figure out how to live in the world, how to cope with the world. Um, I think that there's some, there's going to be something about there's, there's tools in 
the synthesis of all of those fields of study. And again, they aren't always in conversation with one another. There's threads that they have in common. There's places where like those real stakes are like really explicitly theorized in a way that you don't always find in some of the more like, um, you know, high theory, um, kind of places. So, um, yeah, I, I want to, I want to work on this question of like, what do we do now? And what do we do? Um, I, I think that, um, so the, the, the book we're talking about today, like gestures towards some of the things that are happening right now, but, um, there, there, I think that we have lived through a, a profound epistemological shift in the way we understand information, knowledge, and like the self. So the, the, the sort of like unified, um, subjectivity, like the subject that's that of like Foucault's theory that is disciplined by society and language, like that subject formation is not necessary for power to work anymore. Like to think of oneself as, as, a unified subject that then norms can discipline, like we are not that anymore. That is not what, that's not what the kids are being taught, right? Um, That's not the subconscious like thing that's happening. Instead, what we see is the self is a set of capacities that are divisible and separate and they are there to be exploited. Um, And that the self is a commodity, something to be um, presented and sold. Um, And, you know, just a simple uh, example of this would be like influencers um, or uh, instead of the use of social media um, or apps to um, connect and enhance one's human connections, that they are a way that they have to be thought of as constantly a self-conscious presentation for the purpose of clicks or likes, right? And then those clicks and likes are monetized in, in in a context of like influencers. So the the young people today, I think, are growing up in a time where they are, it is just part of their taken for granted reality that they're, they are, a com- the self is a commodity. Um, and that that's going to have profound consequences for understanding how power works, how norms work, right? When the, the kind of gender critiques that are, were being done in the nineties, like it's not the same. It's not, it's not the same. It's, it's not, are you being pathologized by your therapist? Right. Um, which is just reference to Eve Sedgwick again, um, where she also was like, I'm less worried about being pathologized by my therapist than my shrinking healthcare, right. (laughs) Mental health coverage. So like there, the world has changed around us. Um, and, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like all doom and gloom. I, I did just present in a very like doom kind of way, um, because I'm interested in the part that's going wrong. Um, and so I'm hoping to think about what, what can theory do in this next moment where the self isn't what the self was, uh, in that, in that sort of 1970s moment when, um, when theory was, you know, critiquing and identifying how it worked. Well, that's a very satisfying answer, Brie. I don't know why you were nervous about it. We, we approve. <laughs> um, does anybody have questions for Brie? You can just unmute yourself and, and speak right up. We'll pause for a second so you can. <laughs> Stacy Wade is holding up the book and family. <laughs> you know, the, when you're... Um, 
when your kids become teenagers, they're going to hold all of this against you. <laughs> the, the expert on adolescence, right? <laughs> well, what's so funny is that um, I, you know, people always talk about like their angelic children, like turning into teenagers. Um, and things were said to me when I turned turn from 12 to 13 as well, like, oh, you're a teenager now. And obviously that scarred me deeply. Um, so, uh, but um, my children are, they are sassy. I mean, they're very, they are very, you know, and they, they people talk about like the terrible twos or there's a phrase called three-nager, you know, um, you know, I get that like the, the like social, like the relational dynamics get, and the, and the problems get way more complex and the stakes get way higher. But I actually think that the, the myth that small children are docile, I mean, maybe some people get lucky and their children's don't question you until they're like 11. I don't know. I I haven't met anyone like that. but maybe it exists, (laughs) but, but yeah, I don't want to give examples. So it's not embarrass anyone who's on here, (laughs) but you know, I, I work very hard to think of my, the small people I live with as people. Right. And, and also to let myself be a person too, and that we have to negotiate that and that there's obviously I have a profound ethical responsibility to make space for them to be themselves and also to respect myself and that they're that learning. That's how we learn healthy boundaries. That's how we learn. So I don't, I don't um, claim to be a professional at it at all (laughs) or to even be successful, but I, I, I'm curious what will happen when, when my kids are teenagers and if they, you know, like little kids say, I hate you, mommy too. You know, like, so, <laughs> you know, it, yes, the game will get more elaborate, but um, I'm not, I'm, I'll be interested to see like how, how, how different will it be if I've made an effort from the start to give my kids space? Um, I, I mean, maybe, yeah, they, they just weren't that uh, moldable to start with. Um, so we'll see. <laughs> Well, how do you approach their reading? Like, what, what do you give them to read? What do you want them? Do you have a sense of what, like, since you, you, you have studied YA and you have thoughts about it, um, is that going to be part of, are you going to involve yourself in that process of, of your kids finding books? Um, yes. Well, um, yeah. I'm like, how, like, how inappropriate is their reading? Um <laughs> <laughs> With Max, when he was little, we like only let him watch like we were very we censored his like TV watching quite a bit, um, mostly so that he wouldn't see um, heterosexual parents. So a different goal than other people. Um, And it was successful in him believing that our family is normal and everyone else is weird. Um, But with our younger one, like she just watched everything he watched and she knows like all the potty words and says stupid and she also like we've had some uh, some odd conversations in our house where she's like no only a girl and a boy can get married and then like our older one is like no <laughs> like that is not true and we're like oh you know or she's like no you know only girls can wear skirts and we're like no <laughs> you know like where some of that like normalization is really like you know i we we let her watch disney too young um but i actually i'm kind of um, i think it's 
very young kids, it's difficult to teach like the critical reading skills that are needed to watch things that are like super problematic. But that I think that those critical reading skills are way more important than like uh, than censoring or selecting media. Um, as I'm saying that, though, I am thinking entirely of fiction and of like creative like shows and movies. And I actually think that kids YouTube and anything with an addictive algorithm is incredibly dangerous. And um, anything that is, uh, you know, I know there were toy commercials in between our Saturday morning cartoons in the 80s. And those were also very problematic, but they are not, they did not operate at the same speed and intensity as trying to get a child to just click the next thing and how disruptive that is to a nervous system, um, how uh, addictive that is. Um, and we sort of like figured out the, by experience that an, an addictive algorithm, um, and, or there's all these like kids shows on YouTube that are just like they're toy porn, basically. Um, they're just like other kids playing with new toys and the toy companies like pay for these kids to film themselves playing with new toys. Um, I, I, yeah. And there's some versions of sort of like kids reality TV that I like think operates in this way. There's this kid named Ryan. Anyway, um, poor Ryan, he's exploited. Like I shouldn't blame Ryan, but man, do I hate Ryan. So, um, like there, I think there is a sort there's a, there's all these genres of like media for consumption for small kids that is completely unfamiliar to anyone who like <laughs> grew up in the eighties and nineties or seventies, right? Like completely unfamiliar and that operates at a, a totally different level. Um, and I've already had conversations with like my oldest about who's seven about like addiction, right. About like what it's trying to do to you. Um, and that that's different, you know, like, or even going into a store that it's designed in a way to make you want things, make you, make you buy things. And that we don't want to get, get played basically. Like we want to be in charge of what we do. We want to have a reason. So, um, anyway, I, I thought of that, like I, when it comes to like it, it, a fiction or a full length feature film, like I, we do very little censorship or even like monitoring screen time. But when it comes to stuff that's designed to be addictive, I get like very, um, very nervous about what we're playing with and at what ages with that kind of stuff. Um, what are some of the YA novels that you recommend to students and, and other readers? Yeah. So, okay. I teach a lot of YA novels that I think are super problematic because I think it's really fun to teach them. Um, and I rare, I rarely teach books that I love, but hold on, I'm looking around because sometimes I read one that I love that I taught a, um, queer YA. I taught the 300 level and I taught queer young adult. And in that, so there were some that were very problematic and that we were like, this book is garbage. We should burn it. But, um, uh, I almost want to like get up and walk over to my book. <laughs> um, the moon was ours. Oh, okay. Is a beautiful book as well as hold on. Where's my, I'm like, where's my pile? 
Um, Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe. That's probably one that people know. Um, it's also a gorgeous um, queer YA book. Um, uh, Juliet Takes a Breath is another beautiful book. Um, I um, read a book to my son, Max. Well, sort of out of inexperience because I, I love YA and I read a lot of YA and study YA. So we read the first novel I ever read to him um, was Holes, um, which they made a movie of. I'm sure most people are familiar with it. Anyway, it it is a tad age inappropriate for a seven-year-old, um, but I like, and I had, I had actually never read it before. So I read it while reading it to my seven-year-old, but um, we had to stop and talk about racism for a second. Um, but uh, no harm in that. It, I like cried while I was reading this book. I like love that book so much. It was so, um, so beautiful. Um, I also love some nonfiction. So um, Kate Bornstein has a book called Hello, Cruel World. Um, that's, uh, it's called, the subtitle is 101 Alternatives to Suicide, but it has a sort of like critical introduction that does some sort of like gender theory, live in the world theory. Um, and I, I think it's an incredibly powerful book that treats um, young people, like treats adolescents as, as people um, and is, is respectful. I, I think it's a, a controversial book because some of the alternatives are things you wouldn't, are, are, are things that are harmful, but when she frames it in terms of like alternatives to suicide, it's like an incredibly powerful acknowledgement of all of the different kinds of things we do to survive. And it also is very explicit about how some of our coping mechanisms can be um, like do harm to ourselves. Um, and that other, we, that we can make choices to do, um, you know, to develop new ones or different ones. And it sort of rates all of the alternatives by like their safety and riskiness and effectiveness. Um, and it just is a really, I think it's a really smart book. It's a, it's, um, I, I, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. So that's another one that I think, um, my kids and I have also read, there's a, a sex ed, um, series, um, that there's a book called sex is a funny word. Um, and it's a sort of, um, comic book style. Um, and there's a, a book for a, a picture book called, oh crap. What makes a baby? Um, that um, sort of uh, does that you're like how babies are made kind of stuff, but divorced from heterosexual sex. So it's like, you need some things, an egg, a sperm, a uterus. And like, it, it basically is, it, it's open enough that it allows for reproductive scenarios that are not just like mom and dad in the bedroom, which those books are so awkward. Like I've read a lot of those books <laughs> written about them. They're, they're so awkward anyway. Um, so um, the, my kids and I have looked at that sex is a funny word and they are just coming out with one that's for, um, for older adolescents right now that it will come out next March. Um, so that's a grab bag of recommendations, I guess. Yeah, I need to task you with making a list for us to <laughs> distribute to the world. Um, I'll express my gratitude. Thank you so much for, um, for joining us and bringing all this deep thought along with you. <laughs> we're all, we're all smarter for it. So um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Timothy. And thank you all for being here. Um, this is just such an honor and I really appreciate it. 
Plain State is produced by Aaron Chambers. Our sound engineer is Stephen Ramsey. Our theme music is by Shadows on a River. On behalf of the Department of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, thank you for listening to the Plain State podcast, tagline forthcoming.